Story One of the Further Chronicles of Avon Lee by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Story One Aunt Cynthia's Persian Cat. Narrated by Beth Thomas. Aunt Cynthia. Read by Lynn Thompson. Ismay. Read by Francis Brown. Max. Read by Arnaldo Machado. The Old Woman. Read by Christine G. Max always blesses the animal when it is referred to, and I don't deny that things have worked together for good after all. But when I think of the anguish of mind which Ismay and I underwent on account of that abominable cat, it is not a blessing that arises uppermost in my thoughts. I never was fond of cats, although I admit they are well enough in their place, and I can worry along comfortably with a nice matronly old tabby who can take care of herself and be of some use in the world. As for Ismay, she hates cats and always did. But Aunt Cynthia, who adored them, could never bring herself to understand that anyone could possibly dislike them. She firmly believed that Ismay and I really liked cats deep down in our hearts, but that owing to some perverse twist in our moral natures, we would not own up to it, but willfully persisted in declaring we didn't. Of all cats, I loathed that white Persian cat of Aunt Cynthia's, and indeed, as we always suspected and finally proved, Aunt herself looked upon the creature with more pride than affection. She would have taken ten times the comfort in a good common puss than she did in that spoiled beauty. But a Persian cat with a recorded pedigree and a market value of one hundred dollars tickled Aunt Cynthia's pride of possession to such an extent that she deluded herself into believing that the animal was really the apple of her eye. It had been presented to her when a kitten by a missionary nephew who had brought it all the way home from Persia, and for the next three years Aunt Cynthia's household existed to wait on that cat hand and foot. It was snow-white, with a bluish-grey spot at the tip of its tail, and it was blue-eyed and deaf and delicate. Aunt Cynthia was always worrying lest it should take cold and die. Ismay and I used to wish that it would. We were so tired of hearing about it and its whims. But we did not say so to Aunt Cynthia. She would probably have never spoken to us again, and there was no wisdom in offending Aunt Cynthia. When you have an unencumbered aunt with a fat bank account, it's just as well to keep on good terms with her if you can. Besides, we really liked Aunt Cynthia very much, at times. Aunt Cynthia was one of those rather exasperating people who nag at you and find fault with you until you think you are justified in hating them, and who then turn round and do something so really nice and kind for you that you feel as if you were compelled to love them dutifully instead. So we listened meekly when she discoursed on Fatima. The cat's name was Fatima and if it was wicked of us to wish for the latter's decease, we were well punished for it later on. One day in November, Aunt Cynthia came sailing out to Spencervale. She really came in a phaeton drawn by a fat grey pony, but somehow Aunt Cynthia always gave you the impression of a full-rigged ship coming gallantly on before a favourable wind. That was a Jonah day for all of us, though. Everything had gone wrong. Ismay had spilled grease on her velvet coat, and the fit of the new blouse I was making was hopelessly askew and the kitchen stove smoked, and the bread was sour. Moreover, Hulda Jane Keeson, our tried and trusted old family nurse and cook and general boss, had what she called the reality in her shoulder. And although Hulda Jane is as good an old creature as ever lived, when she has the reality, other people who are in the house want to get out of it, and if they can't, feel about as comfortable as St. Lawrence on his gridiron. And on top of this came Aunt Cynthia's call and request. "'Dear me!' said Aunt Cynthia, sniffing. "'Don't I smell smoke? "'You girls must manage your range very badly. "'Mine never smokes. "'But it is no more than one night expect "'when two girls try to keep house without a man about the place.' "'We get along very well without a man about the place,' I said loftily. 
Max hadn't been in for four whole days, and although nobody wanted to see him particularly, I couldn't help wondering why. Men are nuisances. I dare say you would pretend to think so, said Aunt Cynthia aggravatingly. But no woman ever does really think so, you know. I imagine that pretty Anne Shirley, who is visiting Ella Kimball, doesn't. I saw her and Dr. Irving out walking this afternoon, looking very well satisfied with themselves. If you dilly-dally much longer, Sue, you will let Max slip through your fingers yet. That was a tactful thing to say to me, who had refused Max Irving so often that I had lost count. I was furious, and so I smiled most sweetly on my maddening aunt. Dear aunt, how amusing of you, I said smoothly. You talk as if I wanted Max. So you do, said Aunt Cynthia. If so, why should I have refused him time and again? I asked smilingly. Right well Aunt Cynthia knew I had. Max always told her. Goodness alone knows why, said Aunt Cynthia. But you may do it once too often, and find yourself taken at your word. There is something very fascinating about this Anne Shirley. Indeed there is, I assented. She has the loveliest eyes I ever saw. She would be just the wife for Max, and I hope he will marry her. Hm, said Aunt Cynthia. Well, I won't entice you into telling any more fibs. And I didn't drive out here today in all this wind to talk sense into you concerning Max. I'm going to Halifax for two months, and I want you to take charge of Fatima for me while I am away. Fatima? I exclaimed. Yes, I don't dare to trust her with the servants. Mind you always warm her milk before you give it to her, and don't on any account let her run out of doors. I looked at Ismay, and Ismay looked at me. We knew we were in for it. To refuse would mortally offend Aunt Cynthia. Besides, if I betrayed any unwillingness, Aunt Cynthia would be sure to put it down to grumpiness over what she had said about Max, and rub it in for years. But I ventured to ask, what if anything happens to her while you are away? It is to prevent that I'm leaving her with you, said Aunt Cynthia. You simply must not let anything happen to her. It will do you good to have a little responsibility, and you will have a chance to find out what an adorable creature Fatima really is. Well, that is all settled. I'll send Fatima out tomorrow. You can take care of that horrid Fatima beast yourself, said Ismay, when the door closed behind Aunt Cynthia. I won't touch her with a yardstick. You had no business to say we'd take her. Did I say we would take her? I demanded crossly. Aunt Cynthia took our consent for granted, and as you know as well as I do, we couldn't have refused. So what is the use of being grouchy? If anything happens to her, Aunt Cynthia will hold us responsible, said Ismay darkly. Do you think Anne Shirley is really engaged to Gilbert Blythe? I asked curiously. I've heard that she was, said Ismay absently. Does she eat anything but milk? Will it do to give her mice? Oh, I guess so. But do you think Max has really fallen in love with her? I dare say. What a relief it will be for you if he has. Oh, of course, I said frostily. Anne Shirley or Anne anybody else is perfectly welcome to Max if she wants him. I certainly do not. Ismay Mead, if that stove doesn't stop smoking, I shall fly into bits. This is a detestable day. I hate that creature. Oh, you shouldn't talk like that when you don't even know her, protested Ismay. Everyone says Anne Shirley is a lovely. I was talking about Fatima, I cried in a rage. Oh, said Ismay. Ismay is stupid at times. I thought the way she said oh was inexcusably stupid. Fatima arrived the next day. Max brought her out in a covered basket lined with padded crimson satin. Max likes cats and Aunt Cynthia. He explained how we were to treat Fatima, and when Ismay had gone out of the room, Ismay always went out of the room when she knew I particularly wanted her to remain, 
he proposed to me again. Of course I said no, as usual, but I was rather pleased. Max has been proposing to me about every two months for two years. Sometimes, as in this case, he went three months, and then I always wondered why. I concluded that he could not really be interested in Anne Shirley, and I was relieved. I didn't want to marry Max, but it was pleasant and convenient to have him around, and we would miss him dreadfully if any other girl snapped him up. He was so useful, and always willing to do anything for us, nail a shingle on the roof, drive us to town, put down carpets, in short, a very present help in all our troubles. So I just beamed on him when I said no. Max began counting on his fingers. When he got as far as eight, he shook his head and began over again. What is it? I asked. I'm trying to count up how many times I have proposed to you, he said. But I can't remember whether I asked you to marry me that day that we dug up the garden or not. If I did, it makes... No, you didn't, I interrupted. Well, that makes it eleven, said Max reflectively. Pretty near the limit, isn't it? My manly pride would not allow me to propose to the same girl more than twelve times. So the next time will be the last, Sue, darling. Oh, I said a trifle flatly. I forgot to resent his calling me darling. I wondered if things wouldn't be rather dull when Max gave up proposing to me. It was the only excitement I had. But of course it would be best, and he couldn't go on at it forever. So, by the way of gracefully dismissing the subject, I asked him what Miss Shirley was like. Very sweet girl, said Max. You know I always admired those great-eyed girls with that splendid Titian hair. I'm dark, with brown eyes. Just then I detested Max. I got up and said I was going to get some milk for Fatima. I found Ismay in a rage in the kitchen. She had been up in the garret, and a mouse had run across her foot. Mice always get on Ismay's nerves. We need a cat badly enough, she fumed. But not a useless, pampered thing like Fatima. The garret is literally swarming with mice. You'll not catch me going up there again. Fatima did not prove such a nuisance as we had feared. Hulda Jane liked her, and Ismay, in spite of her declaration that she would have nothing to do with her, looked after her comfort scrupulously. She even used to get up in the middle of the night and go out to see if Fatima was warm. Max came in every day, and, being around, gave us good advice. Then one day, about three weeks after Aunt Cynthia's departure, Fatima disappeared, just simply disappeared as if she had been dissolved into thin air. We left her one afternoon, curled up asleep in her basket by the fire, under Hulda Jane's eye, while we went out to make a call. When we came home, Fatima was gone. Hulda Jane wept, and was as one whom the gods have made mad. She vowed that she had never let Fatima out of her sight the whole time, save once for three minutes when she ran up to the garret for some summer savoury. When she came back, the kitchen door had blown open, and Fatima had vanished. Ismay and I were frantic. We ran about the garden and through the outhouses and the woods behind the house like wild creatures, calling Fatima, but in vain. Then Ismay sat down on the front doorsteps and cried. She's got out, and she'll catch her death of cold, and Aunt Cynthia will never forgive us. I'm going for Max, I declared. So I did, through the spruce woods and over the field as fast as my feet could carry me, thanking my stars that there was a Max to go to in such a predicament. Max came over, and we had another search, but without result. Days passed, but we did not find Fatima. I would certainly have gone crazy had it not been for Max. He was worth his weight in gold during the awful week that followed. We did not dare advertise lest Aunt Cynthia should see it, but we inquired far and wide for a white Persian cat with a blue spot on its tail, and offered a reward for it. But nobody had seen it, although people kept coming to the house night and day with every kind of a cat in baskets, wanting to know if it was the one we had lost. We shall never see Fatima again, I said hopelessly to Max and Ismay one afternoon. 
I had just turned away an old woman with a big yellow tommy which she insisted must be ours. As it came to a place, ma'am, a yowling fearful, ma'am, and it don't belong to nobody, not down Grafton Way, ma'am. I am afraid you won't, said Max. She must have perished from exposure long ere this. Aunt Cynthia will never forgive us, said Ismay dismally. I had a presentiment of trouble the moment that cat came into this house. We had never heard of this presentiment before, but Ismay is good at having presentiments after things happen. What shall we do? I demanded helplessly. Max, can't you find some way out of this scrape for us? Advertising the Charlottetown papers for a white Persian cat, suggested Max. Someone may have one for sale. If so, you must buy it and palm it off on your good aunt as Fatima. She's very short-sighted, so it will be quite possible. But Fatima has a blue spot on her tail. I said. You must advertise for a cat with a blue spot on its tail, said Max. It will cost a pretty penny, said Ismay dolefully. Fatima was valued at one hundred dollars. We must take the money that we have been saving for our new furs, I said sorrowfully. There is no other way out of it. It will cost us a good deal more if we lose Aunt Cynthia's favour. She is quite capable of believing that we have made away with Fatima deliberately, and with malice aforethought. So we advertised. Max went to town and had the notice inserted in the most important daily. We asked anyone who had a white Persian cat with a blue spot at the tip of its tail to dispose of to communicate with M.I., care of the enterprise. We really did not have much hope that anything would come of it, so we were surprised and delighted over the letter Max brought home from town four days later. It was a typewritten screed from Halifax, stating that the writer had for sale a white Persian cat answering to our description. The price was a hundred and ten dollars and if M.I. cared to go to Halifax and inspect the animal, it would be found at 110 Hollis Street by inquiring for Persian. Temper your joy, my friends, said Ismay gloomily. The cat may not suit. The blue spot may be too big or too small or not in the right place. I consistently refuse to believe that any good thing can come out of this deplorable affair. Just at this moment there was a knock at the door, and I hurried out. The postmaster's boy was there with a telegram. I tore it open, glanced at it, and dashed back into the room. What is it now? cried Ismay, beholding my face. I held out the telegram. It was from Aunt Cynthia. She had wired us to send Fatima to Halifax by express immediately. For the first time, Max did not seem ready to rush into the breach with a suggestion. It was I who spoke first. Max, I said imploringly, you'll see us through this, won't you? Neither Ismay nor I can rush off to Halifax at once. You must go tomorrow morning. Go right to 110 Hollis Street and ask for Persian. If the cat looks enough like Fatima, buy it and take it to Aunt Cynthia. If it doesn't, oh, but it must. You'll go, won't you? That depends, said Max. I stared at him. This was so unlike Max. You're sending me on a nasty errand, he said coolly. How do I know that Aunt Cynthia would be deceived after all, even if she be short-sighted? Buying a cat in a joke is a huge risk. And if she should see through the scheme, I shall be in a pretty mess. Oh, Max, I said on the verge of tears. Of course, said Max, looking meditatively into the fire. If I were really one of the family, or had any reasonable prospect of being so, I would not mind so much. It would be all in the day's work then. But as it is... Ismay got up and went out of the room. Oh, Max, please! I said. Will you marry me, Sue? demanded Max sternly. If you will agree, 
I'll go to Halifax and bear the lion in its den unflinchingly. If that's a Sari, I'll take a black street cat to Aunt Cynthia and swear that it is Fatima. I'll get you out of the scrape. If I have to prove that you never had Fatima and that she's saving your procession at the present time, and that there never was such an animal as Fatima anyhow, I'll do anything, say anything, but it must be for my future wife. Will nothing else content you? I said helplessly. Nothing. I thought hard. Of course, Max was acting abominably, but... But he really was a dear fellow, and this was the twelfth time. And there was Anne Shirley. I knew in my secret soul that life would be dreadfully dismal if Max were not around somewhere. Besides, I would have married him long ago had not Aunt Cynthia thrown us so pointedly at each other's heads ever since he came to Spencervale. Very well, I said crossly. Max left for Halifax in the morning. Next day we got a wire saying it was all right. The evening of the following day he was back in Spencervale. Ismay and I put him in a chair and glared at him impatiently. Max began to laugh, and laughed until he turned blue. I'm glad it's so amusing, said Ismay severely. If Sue and I could see the joke, it might be more so. Dear little girls, have patience with me, implored Max. If you knew what it cost me to keep a straight face in Halifax, you would forgive me for breaking out now. We forgive you, but for pity's sake tell us all about it, I cried. Well... As soon as I arrived at Halifax, I hurried to 110 Holly Street. But, see here, didn't you tell me that your aunt's address was 10 Pleasant Street? So it is. It isn't. You look at the address from a telegram next time you get one. She went a week ago to visit another friend who lives at 110 Hollis. Max! It's a fact. I rang the bell and was just going to ask the maid for a Persian when your Aunt Cynthia herself came through the hall and pounced on me. Max, she said, have you brought Fatima? No, I answered, trying to adjust my wits to this new development as she told me into the library. No, I, I, I just came to Halifax on a little matter of business. Dear me, said Aunt Cynthia crossly. I don't know what those girls mean. I wired them to send Fatima at once, and she has not come yet, and I am expecting a call every minute from someone who wants to buy her. Oh, I murmured, mining deeper every minute. Yes. When on your aunt. There is an advertisement in the Charlotte Town Enterprise for a Persian cat, and I answered it. Fatima is really quite a charge, you know, and so apt to die and be a dead loss. Did your aunt mean a pawn, girls? And so, although I am considerably attached to her, I have decided to part with her. By this time, I had got my second wind, and I promptly decided that a judicious mixture of the truth was the thing required. Well, of all the curious coincidences, I exclaimed, Why, Miss Healy, it was I who advertised for a Persian cat on Sue's behalf. She and his may have decided that they want a cat like Fatima for themselves. You should have seen how she beamed. She said she knew you always really liked cats, only you would never own up to it. She clenched the dicker then and there. I passed her over your hundred and ten dollars. She took the money without turning a hair, and now you are the joint owners of Fatima. Good luck on your bargain. Mean old thing, sniffed Ismay. She meant Aunt Cynthia, and remembering our shabby furs, I didn't disagree with her. But there is no Fatima. I said dubiously. How shall we account for her when Aunt Cynthia comes home? Well, your aunt isn't coming home for a month yet. 
When she comes, you will have to tell her that a cat is lost. But you needn't say when it happened. As for the rest, Fatima is your property now, so Aunt Cynthia can't grumble. But she will have a poorer opinion than ever of your fitness to run a house alone. When Max left, I went to the window to watch him down the path. He really was a handsome fellow, and I was proud of him. At the gate, he turned to wave me goodbye, and as he did, he glanced upward. Even at that distance, I saw the look of amazement on his face. Then he came bolting back. Ismay, the house is on fire! I shrieked as I flew to the door. So, cried Max, I saw Fatima, or her ghost, at the garret window a moment ago. Nonsense! I cried. But Ismay was already halfway up the stairs, and we followed. Straight to the garret we rushed. There sat Fatima, sleek and complacent, sunning herself in the window. Max laughed until the rafters rang. She can't have been up here all this time, I protested half tearfully. We would have heard her meowing. But you didn't, said Max. She would have died of the cold, declared Ismay. But she hasn't, said Max. Or starved, I cried. The place is alive with mice, said Max. No, girls, there's no doubt the cat has been there the whole fourth night. She must have followed Hulda Jane out there, unobserved that day. It's a wonder you didn't hear her crying, if she did cry. But perhaps she didn't, and, of course, you sleep downstairs. Do you think I never thought of looking here for her? It has cost us over a hundred dollars, said Ismay with a malevolent glance at the sleek Fatima. It has cost me more than that, I said as I turned to the stairway. Max held me back for an instant, while Ismay and Fatima patted down. Do you think it has cost too much, Sue? He whispered. I looked at him sideways. He was really a dear. Niceness fairly exhaled from him. No, I said. But when we are married, you will have to take care of Fatima. I won't. Dear Fatima, said Max gratefully. End of story one.